Welcome back. You're listening to Talk Rehab. I'm Bill Nolting, and I want to thank Quantum Rehab for their support and for helping to bring this episode to you. Today's Talk Rehab guest is Pooja Vishwanathan, co-founder and CEO of Braze Mobility, a Canadian company that makes blind spot sensor systems for wheelchairs, which you'll hear all about in a few minutes. Dr. Vishwanathan completed her doctoral and postdoctoral research in robotics and assistive technologies and has been working with smart wheelchair technology for over a decade. She has a passion for improving accessibility and independence for people with physical disabilities. She's received several awards and scholarships from several prestigious organizations in Canada and the U.S., including Google. I have to ask her about that one. Pooja, thanks for joining me today. Please introduce yourself and give us a little background. Tell me how you got interested in smart wheelchair technology. Yeah, so um, I really sort of accidentally stumbled upon this field initially in my undergraduate degree. So I was doing a computer science undergrad at the University of Waterloo, um, and I happened to walk into a seminar, and it was really because I smelled food, like most undergrad students were always looking for free food. Uh, and so I, I ended up, you know, in this in the seminar that was talking about assistive technologies, and I just found it so fascinating and the application so fascinating because the whole reason I had actually entered into computer science program and into the bioinformatics program that was that I was in was because I was I was good at building things and I really enjoyed um, you know working with technology but I really wanted to apply it uh, to improve the quality of human life and so uh, I already had a sort of inclination towards um, something that would improve uh, you know human life and. And then I saw this seminar and thought, you know what, this is this is a really great way to blend all of my different interests together. And so that's how I started in the field, ended up in a research lab in Toronto. And it was a really unique lab, I think, because it was one of the few labs in the world that was developing assistive technologies and mainly for older adults with dementia. So that was sort of their, their primary focus area. But what made them truly unique was they were one of the few labs in the world that tested their technologies with the intended users. So that, that sort of sounds like, you know, well, doesn't everyone do this? And, and actually, no. You know, you see a lot of research labs, especially when they're sort of technical, um, you know, computer science or robotics labs, you see a lot of these technologies either being tested in simulation or being tested with, you know, the users that are not the intended users. And right. So, so you really don't get the um, the appropriate feedback and, and don't get an indication of whether this is actually going to be adopted by a real user. So that was what really drew me to the lab. And that's where I started. And then I, um, I discovered the problem that I actually became so passionate about solving uh, in a long-term care setting. So as part of my research project, I visited a long-term care facility for the first time and there saw a lot of older adults in, in the long-term care setting slumped over in manual wheelchairs. They didn't have the strength to self-propel, but they also weren't being allowed to use power mobility devices because of a lot of the sort of restrictions in the facility, safety concerns. Um, you know, oftentimes just a diagnosis of dementia was alone, uh, uh, you know, enough to uh, deny someone from the, uh, the right to use a power wheelchair. So I really saw that as a violation of, you know, fundamental human right. Mobility really is a right, although it is seen as a privilege in some cases. But a lot of these other, you know, safety factors and all of these things needed to be taken into consideration and needed to be solved. So um, that's that's how I set out on this journey. And um, 
ended up doing a PhD for six years, developing technology, testing the technology with the intended users, and then going on to do more postdoctoral research, which actually moved away from developing the technology as much and started focusing more on the user experience. So I, I really changed my focus to from sort of from very quantitative uh, methods that you often see in computer science to actually very qualitative methods that you typically see in social sciences, uh, but actually brought those two things together because I think that's that's really important to really understand the, the bigger picture and understand the whole story. Uh, you really need to understand what the experiences are from the user's perspective. Are you familiar with Cole Galloway? Yes, I am. Cole is very passionate about movement as a human right, and I think you guys would have a lot to talk about. Yes. You know, I think in my whole journey, there's been so many people that I've met. I think that's one of the great things about being an academic is, you know, I used to travel so often, go to so many different conferences. And so as a result, at least in the in the smart wheelchair space, um, I'm actually part of quite a huge network um, of clinical researchers, engineering researchers, clinicians who have all been exploring this area for a very, very long time. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it all seems very new to the, the CRT industry, but it's not as new in the academic world where we've been doing research uh, in this area for decades now. Is this the primary thing that you do, raise mobility, smart wheelchair technology? Yeah, and, and it really is, you know, the, the basic problem that we're solving here is of access, right? So, um, sorry, I don't know if you can hear that. There's a lot I of heard construction that. It's okay. going on. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so the basic problem we're solving here is really of access, right? So we're looking at, first of all, how do you um, enable as many people as possible to access the technology that they need to continue to remain independent and mobile? And for those who aren't quite uh, able to, to access technology in its current form, how do we uh, improve the form or kind of add the right supports um, in place in order for people to be able to use it more effectively. Uh, so that's really what we're interested in solving. So obviously, we're, we're really focused on the mobility space. Um, you know, we think that there's just so many physical barriers to accessing the environment. And I've just seen so many, it's a continuous learning process, but I've just seen so much, at least in the last decade, ever since I've developed relationships with my end users, with their families, um, you know, we have such a long way to go in terms of making our environments, um, our schools, our, our workplaces more accessible. So this is something that we're very, very passionate about at Braze. How long has Braze Mobility been around? And can you give me a sense of size? How large is the company? So we started about five years ago is when I founded the company. And we've actually stayed a very, very small company, a very lean company. Now, that doesn't mean we haven't had a lot of people working. In fact, you know, we've, we've had our company size be as large as almost a dozen people. Um, and we certainly have a lot of people that we work with sort of on and off part-time and contract capacity. But our, our main core team has always been really small. And, and that's because we really wanted to ensure that we fully understood the problem and had a solution that was going to be adopted and, and really accessible before we really look, for, look at growth. Um, we also wanted to make sure that our leadership team in place is, is very diverse. And so we are slowly growing out our leadership team now. And you know, one of our huge priorities, priorities is, is to ensure that the diversity and um, the inclusion that we are looking to achieving in CRT is ref reflected in our own leadership team. 
How did you become interested in assistive technology? Yeah, you know, I think it's it's really just all about um, equal opportunity and access, right? I, you know, I think a lot of the work that I was doing earlier on, um, you know, it was is really just kind of studying the human body, studying the human brain. But what we, what really, the, in terms of our day to day, it's really about well, what do what can we achieve, you know, on a day to day basis? What does that mean about our function? And so much of that can actually be enhanced or supported through technology. And that's really why I made that pivot because, um, you know, and I have tremendous respect for people in the life sciences who have a, certainly a lot more patience than I do in terms of, you know, coming up with incredible cures to, um, you know, all sorts of uh, um, conditions and, and disorders. But I think for me, uh, I'm a very hands-on person and I like to see um, tangible outcomes in my lifetime. And so that was a huge reason I also made the transition because I do believe that technology plays such a pivotal role in making a big difference in a fairly short period of time. I'm sure you've heard about a relatively new company, Lucy, which seems to be doing something similar to Braze. Yeah, you know, Lucy's a lot more similar, I'd say, to what Braze was um, maybe 10 years ago. Um, it, so it's, it's really, really interesting because, and, and, you know, I speak from my own personal experience in this. When I first approached the problem of safety, of exclusion, as a roboticist, as a computer scientist, all of us in the lab sort of immediately kind of jumped to the solution of, hey, here's, uh, why don't we just build a wheelchair that stops, right? And that's, and that's really appealing to someone who's a roboticist. We love controlling things. We love um, making machines uh, take control, doing things better than human beings can. And so that was my focus for a very long time. In fact, almost all of my PhD and postdoctoral work was in this idea of how can the wheelchair take control in order to increase safety. And that notion of mine really only got challenged when I started my postdoctoral work and actually started doing customer interviews. And there we started really exploring the different attitudes towards control, like how people feel about being in control of their wheelchair. How do they feel about the wheelchair sharing that control with them or taking that control over with them? And so it was really a lot of my discoveries during that phase of my work, as well as the work that I eventually did while starting Braze with also just talking to end users uh, with varying abilities and, and talking to them about what it was that would, what they wanted in the system that would really help them. And what we found was the majority of our users really didn't like the idea of the chair taking control. And so with all of our initial prototypes, the biggest pushback that we got was, you know, I like the feedback that I'm getting from the system, but I really don't like the chair stopping for me. I just want more awareness. And so that was my sort of personal experience and my reasons to pivot away from technology that I'd been building for you know well over a decade, and it's very difficult to do for you know a, a developer to say, I'm I'm just going to set this technology aside that's really been my baby for so many years, and really just sort of listen to what my my users are telling me and see if maybe there isn't a different solution. And I think the the solution that we then came to was more of a process of delving deeper into well, if accidents were happening, what are some of the possible other explanations, right? So why might accidents happen? Uh, we started looking at, you know, spatial awareness issues. We started looking at, you know, not just like visual, but depth perception issues, attention issues. 
And, and it became very clear that we could, in fact, build a technology where people could still maximize their independence. They could still feel in control of the driving experience, but just felt more aware of what was going on in their environment. And so if you look at sort of the whole spectrum of automation, right? So you've got sort of very little to no automation and all the way up to full automation. You know, we made the choice that we were really going to start with the least sort of invasive um, and, and, and sort of autonomous uh, in terms of the system. You know, it's always about who are you, who are you talking about autonomy with respect to, right? Is it, is it the system that's autonomous or the user that's autonomous? But in any case, we decided that we were going to build a system that really maximized uh, user independence and and, um, and awareness while still trying to improve safety. Are you able to gather feedback? Is there connectivity in your product that, that feeds back information to you so that you can develop some metrics or some get some idea about what's happening with real people? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we collect information in many different ways. I mean, a lot of it is really actually just feedback from users directly. We have very regular touch points with our customers. Um, and so we'll often follow up at, at various stages too, because what's really fascinating is we get very different experiences and feedback from our customers when they just start using the product whereas, versus some of our customers who've already been using it for a couple of years. And so I'll give you an example. When our customers first start using their product, they're kind of using it everywhere, right? They're using it in their homes. They're using it in familiar spaces. They're using it in unfamiliar spaces. And then as we start to you know, see more experienced users, we start to hear that, that they are actually not using it as much in their familiar spaces because they've kind of used the system to already create visual pathways around their home. So where they might have been struggling before getting through doorways, for example, with that repeated feedback, they are now very comfortable with the path that, and they, they understand the path that they need to drive so that they're not bumping into things. Without the feedback? Without the feedback, that's right. Okay. Um, and so it's actually improving their underlying sort of skills. And, and now they're using the system more for when they're in that slightly more unfamiliar environment or they're in a familiar environment, but maybe something's changed. Like maybe there's some, someone in there that's not usually there. Uh, so that was really fascinating for us to even see how, and, and I think this leads to sort of some of our future work, which is what is the potential of the system also as a training tool, right? Because it, it might not be the same for everyone. I mean, some folks might need it there all the time. But you can certainly see how this example that I gave you suggests that there could be a lot of potential for individuals who maybe when they start off are really struggling, don't quite understand the footprint of the chair. And a system like this could actually help them develop the confidence that they need in order to be able to, um, to, uh, to operate the device. And so that's something that we're, we're exploring right now. We've actually, we're actually talking to a lot of clinical researchers who are very, very interested in this area to see how can we improve training and assessment and actually use some of the tools we've created at Braze uh, in those in in training assessment contexts, you know, and not, and not just sort of you know the longer term context. At what point in this development cycle did you interface with the OTs and PTs of the world? Oh, throughout um, when we started, we actually started in took all of our initial prototypes into the clinic. Um, so we went in there, we talked to therapists. In fact. Some of our biggest naysayers uh, at the beginning ended up being some of our biggest biggest advocates, and I think those were some of our early victories. Working with them meant that we were able to understand what the key factors would be, you know, in terms of 
what is what are some of the considerations in terms of installate like ease of installation or how long it takes to install something or how much training is required you know obviously clinicians want the best for their clients but they're also they also don't have a lot of time and so they want to understand how they would be part of the process and and that's you know until today we still have a group of um, therapists and clinicians that we often will lean on and and talk to and get feedback on whether it's about our current system or whether it's about systems coming up. Uh, we often share case studies. We we often hear of case studies from our from our, our therapists around clients that they've used the system with successfully and shared those stories with us. So I think we have a really great um, working relationship uh, with with really I think everyone in that in the circle of care, right? So it's it's everyone from our end users to their family members to the, the therapist to um, you know, the ATPs that are providing the service. And so we really try to build those connections so we're not creating silos. And I think that that was something that I worked on a lot as an academic as well, is really breaking down those silos across different disciplines. Does your company provide products globally? Or are you Canadian mostly or U.S.? Or where do, where do you sell your stuff? So currently, most of our sales are definitely in North America. Um, we are slowly expanding overseas. We make our products mainly actually here locally in, in Canada and the U.S., uh, but we are looking to expand. So we're looking uh, currently at Australia and New Zealand. We've had some interest from Asian markets. So, you know, this is certainly going to be the year that we we start to see some some global expansion and I think you're going to see a lot more of it, uh, you know, next year. And, and certainly as, as the COVID situation improves, uh, it will make things a little bit easier as well. But, you know, for now, we're really focused on the North American market and, and, and really using this feedback and the, the relationships that we've developed here to also inform how we're going to be rolling out this product in other parts of the world. Is there one product or are there multiple product models? So there are two main configurations uh, that we provide. There is a lot of customization now within these configurations, uh, but I'll speak to two main um, offerings that we have. So the first is the, the more popular one, which is called the Sentina. The Sentina is a uh, sensor that has about 180 degrees of horizontal coverage. Sorry, I'm just going to break there. Would it help if I sh bring out a demo? I have a little portable demo. Yeah. Yeah? Okay, let me just bring it over. While Pooja gets that ready for us, let's take a minute and talk with J.B. Radebaugh, Quantum's Clinical Education Manager for the Eastern U.S. J.B., Welcome. There's a lot we could talk about. If it's okay with you, let's start with the Stretto, one of my favorites. How's it going? Sure. Um, the, the Stretto has been really an incredible base for us, a brand new base to us as far as the Quantum line goes. You know, it was designed from the ground up, so it's not a re-release. It's not an Edge 2. It's not an Edge 3 kind of thing. And we found it's been absolutely fantastic. It's a, um, I kind of like to call it a very capable little base as far as narrowness goes. It does a great job climbing outside. I didn't think that I was a little bit nervous, I guess, at the beginning uh, about that, the smaller casters in the front and quickly realized that it'll pull through some real loose terrain exceptionally well. Does it have a center of gravity issue because it is narrow? Well, what they did with this base is they, it's a, it's a mid-wheel drive base, but it's a little bit more of a hybrid front mid-wheel drive base. Um, so what it does is it sort of acts a little bit more like a front wheel drive chair as it got, climbs up and over those obstacles. 
So it really does a nice job that way. Uh, of course, you know, was you're selecting any base, you know, you need to look at the individual's height and their environments, of course, and then where their weight is distributed as far as the type of body style that they have. The Stretto has been a real big winner for us, and I hope folks are enjoying it. How big are the drive wheels? Uh, so you got a couple different options there. You've got 12s or or uh, the the 14 inch drive tires. So you can go 20 and a half inches wide with those smaller drive tires. You don't lose any height uh, as far as ground clearance, which is was a big concern, you know, right out of the get go. And then uh, if you have those larger tires on there, you're looking at 21 and a half as far as your overall width. And of course, eye level is is available on the Stretto, right? Absolutely. It's a redesigned eye level. So it's not the exact same thing that you're used to seeing on our Edge 3 or Edge 2 series. However, it does still allow you to, to be in full elevation or power, you know, using your power adjustable seat height uh, and be able to, to cruise at some really nice speeds, significantly faster than walking. Let's talk about the backup camera. That made kind of a splash. I always bug Jay, hey, what took you so long? <laughs> the, the, the industry as a whole kind of makes me a little bit crazy because we follow you know, so much of consumer releases, you know, when it comes to Ogcom and Alexa or, or whatnot, I'll probably make everything go crazy. But the backup camera has been something that really has been missing. I really enjoy that it's something that's feasible. When we started kind of designing that, we were really looking at a lot of different options and, you know, how you reverse in your car and you see the, the lines change as you turn course. And we started to look into stuff like that and then realized real quickly we're pricing folks out of the opportunity to receive this type of equipment. But it's absolutely fantastic. It's been great for PTSD for our VAs. Um, you know, that way nobody sneaks up on them. You know, you can always see what's going on and, and not just for PTSD. It's seeing your, your surroundings, especially out in the public environments that you don't know so well that you could do it eyes closed, uh, making sure that you're not hitting anybody or anything like that. And there's some cool opportunities. Um, people are starting to use those for case studies where folks have limited neck range of motion. So their visual field is limited. So actually not necessarily using it as a backup camera, but more of a opportunity for that individual to see everything in front of their chair uh, without having to really wrench on their neck. I really miss the forward facing camera on the car that I have now, oddly enough. Is anybody using the backup camera as a front facing camera? Mm-hmm. So, so we're, I'm trying it on a couple of folks. I don't know the outcomes yet, but it's a little bit promising, especially for some folks um, post CVA with maybe a little bit of neglect. Um, that way they can make sure that they have the ability to see their full surroundings. So lots of different cool applications that we're starting to find after the release of the backup camera. Thanks, JB. That's great info from Quantum. Now let's see if Dr. Vishwanathan is ready with the blind spot sensor demo. Now, as you have come to realize, this is not a video podcast, but I thought it would still be a great demo. To get the full effect, please watch the demos on the Braze Mobility website. Pooja, is it time? Yeah, so so this is what we call the Sentina. It's 180 degrees of um, horizontal coverage and about 45 to 50 degrees of vertical coverage. Mm-hmm. And this typically mounts to the rear uh, of the chair. And that, that's the most popular, obviously, because the rear is where most people really have little to no visibility. Um, you know, you're sitting in your office chair, you try to see the floor behind you, 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 you can barely see it. So uh, this is definitely the, the most popular uh, unit that most of our wheelchair users want um, for their for their visibility. And then we also have these smaller sensors that are called echo heads. Now, these typically plug into the Sentina. And so the way to imagine this is, you know, you'd have a Sentina in the rear, and then you might have a couple of echo heads in the front. 
uh, kind of pointed out at a diagonal, and that would help with navigating doorways, for example, just like tight, tight corridors, tight spaces. And so these are the sensors, and those are surmounted uh, on the chair. And then we also have the controller here, which provides all of the feedback. So what you're seeing there is the visual feedback through the lights that you're seeing. Uh, the top row corresponds to obstacles in the front, the bottom row corresponding to obstacles in the rear. The red and yellow lights indicate how far away the obstacle is, and so we have what's called the danger zone and the warning zone. So danger in this configuration is within one foot, and warning is, is within two feet. But you can simply click a button which will put you into long-range mode. So you see that by the two blue lights. And now all of the distances are doubled. So you've got four feet of warning and two feet of danger. And these are all still just the default settings. In reality, the settings can actually be configured anywhere from like an inch all the way out to six feet. So you can even use this as a social distancing tool, right? So we have some wheelchair users who can literally set this up for a six foot, you know, warning threshold. And now if anyone's within six feet, they can get, um, kind of can get an alert. So it's kind of handy as a, as a tool that way as well. Is it easy enough to program myself? Can I change those settings myself? Yes, the, the settings can be changed through uh, a, a smartphone app. So the user can do it themselves. Uh, you know, if, if it's done at installation, then it's usually an ATP that's doing that. So, so this is all the visual alerts. And like I said, they can all be configured. We've also got audio feedback. So if we push a button up here, we've now activated the audio. And so if I, you see the red light activates, you get an audio alert as well. Um, oh, and of okay. course, that can be turned on and off because that can get very annoying if very annoying. space where you don't want the audio going off. Um, you know, the neat part about the audio, too, is oftentimes we'll see customers not really put it on for themselves, uh, but more to alert others in the environment. So, you know, we've had kids, for example, that use it in schools because other children might not quite understand, um, you know, that the child that's using the chair might need a little more space to maneuver. And so it's a nice way to also sort of warn everyone else to sort of get out of the way uh, and, you know, give the wheelchair user the space that they need to maneuver. So that's the audio. And then the last modality is vibration, which is activated by this final switch here. And that activates these pads that can be placed in different areas of the wheelchair. Um, we typically recommend left, center, right. So like armrest, backrest, or seat cushions. And that way, if, you know, you, you're... Um, uh, trying to get a wheelchair through like a doorway. If you're too close to the right side of the, uh, of the doorway, then the right vibration module will go off. If you're too close to the left, the left vibration module will go off. So it gives you that sort of localized um, uh, proximity information. Is it coded in the States yet? It is not. So it is uh, currently the, the miscellaneous code, the KO108 is what, um, or E1399 uh, is, what, is what's used. Um, and, you know, I, I think... It'll be interesting to see whether, you know, a code does is established for this sort of product. It's, it's so needed. And, you know, especially with this sort of technology having been mandated in the automotive industry now, I think that's really set the precedent that this is, is really a need. You know, it's, it's not really a nice to have anymore. At some minimal level of information through sensors or cameras are really, are really necessary because if you look at even before cars had sensors, we still had rear view and side view mirrors for many, many years. And even that basic, you know, technology does not exist for a wheelchair. In fact, if you tried to put mirrors, 
they probably just get knocked, uh, you know, knocked out because there's no place you can really put them to get that visibility and not have them be in the way. So this is really basic, basic technology that needs to be accessed by everyone. I bet you have a liability insurance issue. Yes. I mean, you know, like all other uh, companies, we have our, our insurance policies as well. Ultimately, what, what we always sort of still emphasize, and, and it's in all of our education as well, and, and it's really our responsibility to educate everyone who deals with the product, whether it's the technicians or the ATPs or the end users, is this is really a tool to enhance the user's awareness, right? It's, it's not meant to be a, 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 a replacement for good judgment. And so if you have someone that's, it's just like your cars, right? I mean, you still are required as a person drive operating your vehicle to, you know, to still look around you to kind of not hit somebody. Yeah. To not hit someone. Um, and to, and you have to go through a driver's license, you know, to qualify and to demonstrate that you are safe. And so that's one of the huge, I think, advantages of our system is that because we don't actually take control of the chair, the ultimate responsibility is still in the user's hands, right? They, they are still the one, you know, hands or, or head or, uh, you know, their tongue or whatever, whatever they're using to control their chair, they're still in, you know, in ultimate control. And so they have to demonstrate safety. And, and certainly, even with therapists who recommend our product, they're still looking for that with all of the users to ensure that the users can, in fact, still demonstrate that they're able to, to operate their, their chair safely. And this is simply a tool to, um, to enhance whatever information or to, to sort of supplement the information that they already have. As an end user, how much would I have to pay? So the retail price on our system, uh, and it's sort of the most popular package that you see, which includes the, the rear um, and a couple of sensors in the front, runs anywhere from $2,000 to $2,500. Very reasonable. Yeah, which makes it actually quite, quite accessible and affordable for a lot of our clients, whether they actually just pay out of pocket or whether they pay in installments. So one of the things that we actually did try to do early on uh, was create flexible payment options for those who might have limited fixed income because what we consistently heard from all of our users is, wow, that's actually a really, really great price. Like, it, it you know, we completely see the justification and the value. I mean, you know, you... Um, knock a patch off your wall, you're paying a couple of thousand dollars in repair. And so the, the, it really does justify itself in terms of cost. Uh, but for those who might just not have that lump sum amount to pay right off the bat, we've, we have found that, you know, just having a little more flexibility in, in payment certainly helps. And so that's something that we're going to be continuing to build on. But what we also see is within that price point, there's been a lot more openness uh, for, for funding to come through, even from state um, funding programs. And so We've seen funding uh, come through from like Office of Vocational Rehab. We've seen funding come through from like Aetna Medicaid, um, auto insurance, commercial insurance. Obviously, you know, the veterans and workers comp uh, will cover this device. And we're looking at Medicaid waiver, you know, which, again, a lot of these programs tend to have about a $3,000 cap. And so we're, we're really well priced um, under that threshold so that there are actually quite a few funding options available. Is there room in there for dealers to make any money? Yes, of course. <laughs> this 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 already accounts for all of the dealer margins. So, um, and and our, our dealers, you know, I think have done a great job of making the product and sort of educating on the product to customers, and and, and kind of you know also being flexible with customers and and giving them the best possible prices. So, 
um, the discounts that we've set up with our dealers certainly takes that into account and gives the dealers the flexibility that they sometimes need in order to get the product funded. Do you have a list of wouldn't it be cool if things for your product? What's next? What are you going to develop next? We have a lot of, uh, you know, wish lists. I mean, you know, and we come up with things all the time. Uh, some of them are just customizations and patches that we add. And then, you know, we have a custom, couple of customers asking for it and then we roll it out in our app. Uh, every single customization we have. And so, you know, the product I showed you seems really simple, but there's probably over 20 customizations um, in terms of different things that can be tweaked, whether it's the color of the lights, whether it's the brightness of the lights, the way in which the feedback is delivered, you know, whether this person maybe only wants feedback in the front in a certain way, but not in the rear. Maybe they want vibration only for the front and then, you know, audio for the rear. Uh, you know, latest tweak we came up with, which I just got an incredible email from a customer this morning, actually, was direction activated feedback. And so we just put out a feature where the feedback is only delivered based on which direction the person's driving. And so it's a little more targeted, uh, you know, reduces the cognitive load a little bit more. So we're constantly rolling out new features. And again, because we work so closely with our clients, we actually created what, what we call the beta community, like a beta client community. And we had our system in this sort of beta mode for almost a year with wheelchair users in the community that were testing it, trialing it, giving feedback. And we've kept that community over the years and grown it, right? So even now, they still receive first access to any new prototype that we have. So they try it out, give us feedback, and then they get perks for being uh, the guinea pigs, right? So they get our sort of um, kind of pre-commercial prices as well. So, it, you know, I think it's a great way to engage. And, and I said, there's, there's so much more coming out. I mean, and, and it's not even just in terms of sensors. I think we, we're also really interested in getting more involved in dialogues around accessibility as a whole, whether it's making our cities more accessible. You know, we, we, we talk about, you know, there's tons of technology that we can come up with, for example, to help a lot of the falls that you see over curbs, um, but really, there also needs to be a lot of dialogue about why those curbs exist in the first place, right? So, you know, I think the technology is a tool and it's certainly a step, but it's not the only step we need to take. I think there's also a lot more we want to get involved in around just dialogue and education and doing whatever we can do to simply eliminate those barriers so that we don't have to keep building technology that can sort of circumvent those barriers. Tell me about your interest in robotics. Are you still interested I have a hot button about the relationships between humans and machines. I'm very interested in what you think about that. Absolutely. I, you know, and like I said, I think, you know, the technology that I've been developing for years, you know, I, it's not to say that it's gone. It's still very much, you know, part of our R&D and we're still constantly working on it and getting, getting feedback on it. You know, I don't think it's, it's, it's not so much that, the, you know, there's the technology isn't there or isn't good technology and it doesn't bring tremendous benefit. I think we just have a lot more to explore and understand in terms of what does it mean to bring out these sort of semi-autonomous and fully autonomous systems. You know, I think fully autonomous, like self-driving wheelchairs could be in incredibly useful for a specific part of the population. And so I don't think we give up. I think we keep pushing the envelope and we keep building these technologies. Uh, I think what we also need to do is just continue to build more clinical evidence around these things, right? And keep working with, whether it's end users or, you know, researchers to ensure that 
uh, we're gathering data, you know, and, and, and sort of mitigating any sort of biases and looking at risk in a very real way. You know, what does it mean uh, when you have someone sitting in, in, in a chair? And I'll give you an example. You know, there's a lot of debate right now in the automotive industry when it comes to sort of higher levels of, of automation. When the driver starts to share control with the, cha- uh, with the, um, with the car in a certain way and, and beyond a certain point, a lot of the accidents that we're starting to see now are actually in that control of, uh, in that switching of control, right? So, uh, in fact, I saw a, a study that actually said that when a, a driver who hasn't really been alert or been controlling the car is now suddenly expected to take control, there can be up to a 17-second um, uh, increase in reaction time, right? So, as we start to develop these new technologies, sure, we might be um, reducing some of the accidents that are currently happening, but we might be introducing new types of accidents. And so we need a, uh, a systematic way of, of collecting that data in, in an independent, perhaps, way as well, right? Because whatever, you know, the industry is obviously biased. As manufacturers, we have bias. And so uh, I think a lot of what we're going to need to do is ensure that we're supporting completely independent validation of the products and, and, and um, technologies that we're developing so that some of these safety concerns can be addressed and so that proper standards can be established for all of us to follow. You know, I think it's so important that this technology comes out um, and it needs to come out in the right way with, with established standards so that the consumer, um, consumer safety and their rights are protected. What's next for you? What do you have lined up? Yeah, uh, gosh, so much. Um, you know, so right now we're really sort of focused on uh, expanding in the North American market. You know, we just onboarded uh, an industry veteran. We just uh, onboarded Alan Boyd, who's been in the industry for a long time, and really thrilled to have him on board. Um, you know, as as ourselves, you know, before Alan came along, we were a group of outsiders. You know, I had absolutely no connections to the CRT industry, and I and I'm really proud of how far we've come. Um, as a small company, being outsiders to the CRT industry. Um, and I'm really looking forward to now what Alan can bring uh, to the table as well in terms of his connections and you know his tremendous knowledge in the space. And also just his respect, his tremendous respect for clinical evidence and research and, and really how we, our own de- development process happened and how we've evolved and how we've come about developing this technology that we have today. Um, so really excited about that and, and working with him to grow within North America. And then, of course, to really become a global company by uh, expanding overseas. So uh, I'm, I'm really excited. I'm looking forward to more and more starting to wear my educator hat. Uh, you know, I've kind of missed uh, being out of the, the research domain for a while, but luckily they haven't let me leave. I've still maintained my collaborators and my, my, my connections with all of my colleagues. And in fact, I'm still actively publishing with a lot of them. Uh, in fact, one of the publications that we most recently have been working on is how to accelerate product development so that it actually gets, to, gets from lab to uh, market faster. And so not only looking at ways of development, but also looking at alternative methods for clinical validation, since you know a lot of the gold standard that we see typically in medical research is, you know, the randomized control trial, which is not necessarily appropriate for our industry, you know, where you see uh, smaller populations that are a lot more heterogeneous. 
Is there a relationship between any diagnoses or diagnosis and your product? Yeah, that's an interesting question. We've certainly tried to collect a lot of that data to see if there are certain diagnoses. And, and what we've really seen is we're seeing di- diagnoses across the board. Uh, we, we're all obviously seeing, you know, uh, high needs, especially when there's any sort of uh, visual loss, right? Like that's obviously going to heighten the need uh, for more awareness. Um, you know, we've seen cerebral palsy, we've seen um, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, we've seen ALS. So we've actually seen quite a lot of diagnoses. And I, and I think I've, I, at least right now, I'm, I'm actually trying to move past the diagnosis and actually just really looking at the need. And one of the things that I often say is, hey, you know, you're sitting in a chair, try to look at the floor behind you. I think that really, uh, really drives home the point that Oftentimes, the need for the product is not necessarily as a result of a medical diagnosis. It is, it's often a result of the configuration of the chair itself and the design of the chair itself, right? Like you've got, you've got this huge thing that's blocking your, your rear visibility. And as a wheelchair user, you're needing to constantly operate in really tight spaces that require you to be able to, you know, see low to the ground behind you. And that's not something that you, you know, generally need to do in a car. Like you're not, you know, when's the last time that you needed to sort of check? Maybe you drop your phone back there. You kind of need to check, you know, behind your seat. But uh, you're, you're, you're not really built to be looking at those angles. And, you know, and that sort of um, dexterity is actually quite challenging. So, you know, with or without diagnoses, I think that we're, we're first trying to really solve a basic problem. And we do see the needs sort of increase with certain diagnoses, but, you know, I think it really is across the board, there is a spatial awareness issue. Um, and it really does come about as, as often the design of the chair itself. And, and sometimes also the way that the person seated in the chair, if you're seated in a tilt position, again, that's going to create additional barriers in terms of being aware of what's around you. Uh, if you're driving with a alternative drive interface, so if you're using eye gaze or sip and puff or head array, you actually need to be facing forwards in order to drive. And so now, again, you've got limited uh, rear visibility. So, you know, I think there's a lot of factors that actually impact um, and, and can create a need for a product like ours. I've talked to a lot of people recently who seem to have broadened their interest or scope of accessibility to include not only the disabled community, but able-bodied people as well, which is what I think I heard you say. Absolutely. Um, you know, I think, and, and we've certainly, you know, it's, it's, as an outsider, I guess, to the CRT industry, it's, it's, I, for me, the CRT industry is what's new, but I've been part of so many organizations and networks outside of CRT, where often a lot of these um, topics are not necessarily spoken about, or there isn't a lot of education there. And so for us, a lot of the ways actually initially where we got traction and found a lot of our customers were at more mainstream events. You know, we were going out and pitching at sort of home shows and, you know, uh, uh, innovation showcases that were very mainstream. They were not uh, oriented towards mobility or, or CRT or, or even just uh, accessibility or disability at all. And what was always really satisfying to me was when I would go out there and, you know, do the pitch and and show these videos, and all of these individuals would come up to me after saying, we had no idea. I remember one specific event, it was actually a showcase that we'd won, and I was up there going going to do my pitch, and we had some of our, our early customers that had come out to support, so they were cheering me on, and they actually couldn't sit in the front row 
because all of the chairs that were placed there had been zip tied together. And so they couldn't make room for my customers. And so I had to basically call somebody and say, hey, I, I have a bunch of folks that need to be seated here. And so they had to go and get a pair of scissors and cut the zip tie so that they could create some space. And so, you know, it, it, it just creates when we've not only just us pitching there, but us having our end users there who otherwise might not have been there, right? Because of like a lot of these barriers and accessibility issues, what we're doing is creating awareness and we're creating a dialogue. And, um, you know, after we actually won that competition, they ended up putting in place an inclusion committee. And they had that committee then drive a lot of the priorities and, and you know, and, and really kind of watch out specifically for accessibility of the venue and the event in the following year. So, um, you know, I think, I think that's also really important that we actually don't speak about disability as if it's this sort of niche thing uh, and that it is really something that impacts every single one of us. Anything that you want to add that we haven't talked about? And I think really all I can add is I think it's just been tremendous of all of the work that we've seen coming out, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, whether it's the backup cameras that you mentioned with Pride or whether it's the Lucy technology um, and, you know, and our technology. I think really what this has all done for the industry is, is, is really just create more awareness. And so, you know, I think it's all fantastic. You know, we, we love all of the other technologies as well. We love what all of these other companies have been doing we think it's only going to create more awareness and more inclusion. And we're going to start seeing this technology become a lot more standard. I, you know, I've seen conversations with a lot of the manufacturers change in the last couple of years dramatically. And I think that is because a lot of the work that not only we are doing, but the other companies that are in this sort of sensor space are doing as well. So uh, really thrilled to see so much innovation. I think we're all going to sort of help each other and, and sort of bring about the rise of this technology. Uh, so really excited for that. And I think it's an exciting time to, uh, to be in this space in CRT. The rise of technology, I like it. Thank you, Dr. Vishwanathan, for your time today and for all your efforts and successes in bringing more independence and safety to the people that use wheelchairs. Go to the Braze Mobility website, just like it sounds, B-R-A-Z-E mobility.com to learn more about their blind spot sensor system. And thanks to Quantum Rehab, global innovator of complex rehab technologies, for their support. Go Stretto. Go where you want to go. Well, that's all for now. Please come back and join me for more episodes of Talk Rehab. I'm Bill Nolting. Thanks for listening. <music>